want to take just a moment as we're getting started this evening in the message side of things and just draw attention to the fact I hope Sherwood never gets to a place that we take the music ministry for granted here. God has blessed this church with incredible musicians, incredible talent, incredible singers, incredible choir. It is blessed. Amen? Amen. Sunday morning, Sunday night, every time we've been a part of services, it's just amazing to see what God is doing. In fact, I'm always blown back a little bit because I, I hear one vocalist, I'm like, man, that person has an amazing voice. Next one comes, that person has an amazing voice. Next one, they got an amazing voice. And it's just amazing. There's so much talent that God has placed in this church and just grateful to God, not only for the talents he gives, but for people willing to use it for his glory. Amen? Amen. So it's been a couple of weeks since we have been in the book of Galatians, but we were working through two big questions out of chapter one. And those two questions were, what is truth and how do you determine truth? What is truth and how do you determine truth? Now, for those of you who hold a biblical worldview, we can answer both of those questions with relative ease. That is, Jesus said, John 17, 17, your word is truth. We find in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, The Bereans, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So if you were to just put those two pieces together, what is truth? God's word is truth. How do you determine truth? That is, check what you hear against what God said. Very easy. Now, that works wonderfully if you're talking to another believer who happens to have a biblical worldview and also shares the authority of Scripture. Now, if you're talking to an unbeliever or you're talking to a skeptic who does not hold a biblical worldview, you have to take a couple of more steps. It doesn't mean you don't get to the exact same answer on the other side. It just takes a couple of other questions in order to move the process towards that end. So for many unbelievers, as well as, sadly, many believers they would reject the first of those, and that is God's word is truth. For that individual, many times they would say, if there is absolute truth, it is what we find in science. Our absolute truth is what we find in popular opinion. Or maybe even absolute truth is what I find within myself. So for that individual, you have to take a couple of other steps in order to get to the same position. And that is God's word is truth. But for that person, you need to go back and see what is the evidence that leads towards that. Why do we believe that the Bible is reliable? Why do we believe that believing that God's word is truth is not just a leap of faith, but rather it is a reasonable proposition that is based upon a mountain of evidence? That's what we've kind of been working through on our Sunday nights as we're going through Galatians, as well as even a little bit of what we were addressing through Scripture a couple of weeks ago. So here's what we've been talking about in recent weeks as it comes to Scripture. That is, we've talked about how the Bible is the best-selling, most printed book of all time. It is composed of 66 books that was written by close to 40 human authors over a 1,600-year period of time on three continents in three different languages. 
The writers include kings and prophets and shepherds and fishermen and soldiers, philosophers, poets, priests, scholars, even a tax collector as well as a doctor. Multiple genres are used, hundreds of topics are addressed, thousands of teachings are given, and yet there is one singular message that starts in the beginning and goes all the way through the end. How can that be? It's because the Bible claims to have one author, and that is God himself. What we find in 2 Timothy 3.16 is it says all scripture is inspired by God, or what we brought out a couple of weeks ago, it is God-breathed or God-breathed out. We talked about how 25% of the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic in nature. It spoke of events that would occur in the future. Of those 2,500 prophecies found in Scripture, 2,000 of those have already been completed as they were described. The probability of 2,000 independent prophecies being fulfilled as they were written is 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. Now, let me just pause here for just a moment and make a personal connection back to probabilities and evidence. That is, our family just moved from Las Vegas in case you all did not know. <laughs> that is a city that is built on probabilities. That is a city that is built on people trying to beat the odds. If there were to be a game in which it promised that 50% of the people who played the game would quadruple their money, people would run you over to play the game. In fact, there would be Christians who would quickly change their theology on gambling if they found out. They, they would say, I don't care what the Bible or Dave Ramsey says on the subject. God has told me I need to play this game. I will tithe 20% next week. We understand probabilities. People understand that. In fact, we find that we eat and we dress and we fly and we invest based upon probabilities. For an example, if you know there's a 10% chance of rain tomorrow, you probably do not take an umbrella with you. 90%? Maybe so. If you find out that people who eat red meat have a 20% higher likelihood of developing heart disease, you might be like, I'll risk it. I like hamburgers. I like steak. I'll work out a little bit more often. We, we live based on probabilities. The odds of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million. I'll get on a plane. We understand probabilities. Probabilities give us confidence in everyday decisions. Here's why I'm making the connection. When we understand probabilities as they relate to fulfilled prophecy, it gives us confidence that God's word is truth. The probabilities are so far beyond our imagination. Believing that the Bible is God's word is not a leap of faith. It is a reasonable proposition that is based upon a mountain of evidence. Now, a few moments ago, I said that the Bible was written by almost 40 human writers. The Apostle Paul was one of those writers. In fact, we find in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that he said that he received divine revelation specifically from Jesus himself. Now, to make the claim is one thing. To back it up is something completely different. So, to back up that claim, he begins a process of sharing his story. 
Because it's found within his story, the story of life change that gives evidence to support the claim that he received divine revelation from Christ himself. Two weeks ago, we started investigating the evidence that he presented, and we are going to complete that investigation this evening. If you would, look with me in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 through 24. I'm continuing on the topic of evidence from a changed life. I'm going to give a brief recap in just a moment, then we'll finish everything out from there. But let's go to God in prayer as we kind of delve into his word this evening. Heavenly Father, we ask from the very beginning that your spirit guide us into truth. God, may we not just learn scripture to have a head full of knowledge. We know that puffs us up with pride. But Lord, may we learn scripture because it is your truth. It is your word. It helps us to know you. God, in the process of studying scripture, I pray that it changes our hearts. It changes our minds. It changes the way we make decisions. It changes the way we live. God will be grateful for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 13 through 24, the Apostle Paul gives his story of life change. He tells you about his life prior to Christ. He also tells you about when he met Christ, and then he gives just a quick synopsis of what has happened since meeting Christ. There is no question that something major has occurred. The persecutor of the church has now become the proclaimer of the gospel. Something major has happened in his life. And when something major happens, it, it changes, it shifts that quickly, that much, that fast, there's only a handful of possibilities as to what would bring about that change. So the last time we were studying the text, I gave you a handful of those. That is, maybe he went insane, or maybe he had a medical condition and he was acting outside of his own volition. Or maybe it had something to do with personal gain. Maybe if he became a Christian, it would give him a life of ease and comfort and luxury. Or, or maybe he was forced to make a change under duress. Or maybe the change was because of what he said, that he received divine revelation from God. There is a significant amount of evidence that would support the last of those conclusions. Also, we found from his story that there's a number of pieces of evidence that reveal this divine revelation that came to him. I gave three of those last week. Here they are very quickly again. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. That was found in verse number 13. Practicing Jews do not usually take a different spiritual path. That was found in verse 14. And then doers do not usually boast in their inabilities. That was found in verses 15 and 16. One of the greatest testimonies to the work of God is a changed life. Now, if there were just one or two of these clues, we might be able to dismiss it. But I also said there is greater certainty because of the cumulative effect of mounting evidence. When it goes beyond two or three or four or five or six pieces of evidence and it's all leading the same direction, there is greater certainty that we have because it's a mounting group of evidence. Now, that being said, here's where the new material begins for this evening. How does the text continue to give evidence of divine revelation through a changed life? Here's the next piece. Pharisees do not usually dedicate their life to serving Gentiles. This is found in verses 15 and 16. It says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, 
was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Now, Paul's call of salvation and his call of service came at the same time. And might I also say the same is true for all of us. Listen to what Jesus said, Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 9, 35, Jesus called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus taught and he modeled service. As disciples, serving is not optional. Now, let me be very, very clear in how I say this. That is, serving is not required to make someone right with God. Did you hear me? Serving is not required to make someone right with God. Jesus has done everything that is necessary on the cross through the resurrection to make a person right before him. But serving is required to walk in obedience to God. Now, if you're challenging that in your mind, let me give you a passage that you can wrestle around with God on. It is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift... Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Did you know God has specifically gifted you, not so that your gift is just a blessing to you, but that you would use that gift in service as a blessing to others? Now let's work that out for just a moment. If that is the case, there is a part of your growth in Christ that only happens in community with other believers. There's a part of the gifting he dropped into your life that he intends for you to work out in serving others. It's a part of the calling that he has given each believer. So in verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul describes himself as a guy who was destined to serve the Gentiles as he said here, to preach Christ among the Gentiles or among the non-Jews. In fact, if you were to go over one more chapter into chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So Paul was sent by Jesus to minister to, to serve, to proclaim the gospel to a group that any respectable Pharisee had spent their entire life trying to avoid. That was his task. I want you to think for just a moment, is there any part of town you don't want to go into? Is there any group of people that you don't want to serve? It, oh, watch out. Is there a family member that you don't want to talk to? What if the calling that God dropped on your life was to dedicate your life to serve the very people you're trying to avoid? That's what happened to Paul. You don't hear him complaining. In fact, you hear him relishing what God has done here. He was sent specifically to the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, they didn't mix because of the covenant relationship with Abraham. Jews were called to live a life of separation from other groups 
as well as unto God. Jews were not to marry with non-Jews. They were not to have certain meals with non-Jews. In the temple, Gentiles or non-Jews could only go so far into the outer courts, but those who were Jews could go a little bit further. Over the years, this division that came from the oral traditions that came out of the Mosaic law was so strong that the early church had to constantly go through and address unity, 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 bringing people together as one body. And for the apostle Paul, he was given this opportunity to go to the Gentiles. It was so much of an issue. If you think division and hatred is bad now, it's been there a long time. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just at different times, different things pop up more in our eyes than maybe at other times or more in our culture than at other times. But hatred and division have been there a long time. It was such an issue that the Jerusalem council had to address that specific problem. In fact, Peter goes, or Paul rebukes Peter for showing favoritism to Jewish believers over Gentile believers. Barnabas referred to as the son of encouragement, a mentor to the apostle Paul, was guilty of not accepting Gentiles. To this very day, there is still this rub between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. To this day, in his task as a Pharisee before Christ saved him, was to willingly accept the assignment of serving the very group that he had tried to avoid. To go from avoiding a group to dedicating your life to serving a group is a massive change. It's just another part of the evidence of a change that happened in his life. So here's the next one. Those who join an elite group do not usually avoid that group. This is found in verses 16 and 17. He says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now, get this picture in your mind. After Judas's betrayal and after his death, you're down to 11 disciples, 11 apostles. Now, some people believe that Matthias rounded that out to number 12, but I don't know if you can find a lot of biblical support with that. It, it seems as though Matthias was man's choice, and then God goes and he finds the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. In fact, if you'll remember how things were left with the group just after Jesus' ascension, he said, stay and wait to be endued with power from on high. What did they do? They couldn't handle waiting. They're like, we got to fill the void. Did you know after that moment you're not seeing Matthias mentioned in Scripture? But what does happen is when Jesus finds Paul, now all of a sudden you find Paul constantly through the rest of the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is the last chosen one specifically by Jesus for this role as being an apostle. And as groups go, it doesn't get any more elite than that particular group. I mean, that's the group right there that they learned from Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They served with Jesus. They, they witnessed Jesus doing miraculous things. It, it is the leader of leaders. It, it's the top group right there. People don't join groups like that and then not connect with them. And yet he says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, but instead I went to Arabia. 
this is just one of those reasons why I know that, that I'm not the Apostle Paul. If I had just been brought into that group, I'd be printing my Apostle business cards that day. I would get me like a vanity plate for the back of my camel. It had like Apostle P. I'm, I'm going to be telling, I'm going to be taking me a selfie right there, like Jesus and my homies, like I'm in the group. We're together. I'm going to be letting some people know. And you don't find that. Instead of him letting other people know, not only does he not go to Jerusalem, he, he doesn't even connect with them. There's not even like a, a meet and greet, not like a, an apostle 101. So now that you're an apostle class that he joins in with. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm just joining this group, I might not talk to him instantly, but I'm going to go find out some stuff. Like, hey, guys, tell me, what was it like? Like traveling with Jesus, learning from him, watching the miracles firsthand. I, what was it like not having to be struck blind for God to get your attention? <laughs> I wish I could go back and change that part of my story, but that's not it. Like, hey, what? Oh, here, do we have a plan? Like, we're supposed to take the gospel to the nations. Do we have a plan? Is there a strategy on this? I've been working through some ideas on my way over here. Is there a plan? Hey, anybody know what my ministry budget is? Anybody? Anybody? I'm, all right, don't worry about that. We'll get back to that later on. But I, how do you work this thing out? Like, th there's, in my mind, I'm a planner. I, I, I want to find out what's the process, what's the strategy, how do we connect, how do we make it happen? And what does he do? He walks away from all of that. He's in the desert for three years. Now, there's all sorts of conjecture as to what he was doing in the desert for three years. It's been suggested that God sent him there to separate him from the other Jewish apostles. It's been suggested that he was to reach out to the Gentiles, and to reach the Gentiles, he needed to learn about how to live as a Gentile. So God took him out of the context of Jerusalem and took him out to a place with more Gentiles. It's been suggested that God took him out there so that Jesus could personally teach him in the desert. It's been suggested that it was needed for the church to not fear him as much, for him to pull away from the church for a period of time, to let all of those past memories die down. But whatever it might be, it's all conjecture. We don't know. But what we do know is his going to the desert actually helps validate his story. Here's what I mean. If Paul learned these truths from the other apostles he would need to have some time with the other apostles. But he claimed that he received them by direct revelation from Christ. His actions fit his story. He, he's saying, I didn't learn it from other people. I learned it from Jesus himself. And then you begin to find the beautiful cohesion between his understanding of the gospel and what is being preached and proclaimed by John and by Peter and by others. Here's another one. How else does this text give evidence of divine revelation through a changed life? Stop there. I, I, I just got random thoughts that come to me from time to time. Do you recognize that every single bit of what we're talking about is evidence from a changed life? If 2,000 years from now, somebody were studying your life in order to find out, are they or are they not a Christian? 
would there be enough evidence to support your claims that you know Jesus? Random thought, I don't know who that's for, but there you go. Here's the next one. Leaders do not usually avoid the spotlight. Verses 17 through 21. Listen to where he went and also listen to where he did not go. Verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. That is the spiritual epicenter of all religious activity. Everybody who was anyone is in Jerusalem. But I went away to Arabia. Arabia is a desert in the east and in the south of Damascus. It's primarily uninhabited. And returned once more to Damascus. Now, Damascus was the place that Paul was going when Jesus stopped him on that road. According to Acts chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, the Gentile authorities in Damascus supported the Jewish leaders' plan to arrest as well as to execute the apostle Paul. And it says here, he's going back to Damascus, to the very place where people are trying to kill him. Verse number 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. Well, that's great. At least he's starting to join the party right now. This is wonderful. Why did he go? To become acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. The word acquainted, it means to visit for the purpose of getting to know. Verse 21, then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Essentially, he goes home. What I mean by that is Tarsus, his hometown, is in the region of Cilicia. You find that Syria is in the region to the south of that. For him to get from one place to the other, he had to go through Syria, getting into Cilicia. So as Paul goes through Syria, he is preaching and proclaiming the word. Then he arrives in Cilicia in his home province, and he began to evangelize. Acts chapter 15, verse 23. Historians believe that he might have stayed in this area for upwards of seven years until he was recruited by none other than Barnabas for missionary work out of Antioch. Now, verse 22, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea. At the end of three years, the people still didn't recognize him. He's unknown by sight. Leaders do not usually avoid the spotlight. Now, we know that Paul was a leader. He was a leader in Judaism prior to placing faith in Christ. He was a leader in the Pharisees prior to being placing faith in Christ. We also know that he has joined one of the most elite group of leaders within this early church. We also understand his travel itinerary takes him to deserted places and unknown places and distant places away from the spotlight and away from the other apostles. Now, we also know that one of the main reasons why he is writing this letter to the Galatians is to confront the Judaizers who were saying, you don't have the right to correct us because you're not a true apostle. You would think that based upon that context, that he would do everything possible to connect with the other crowd, to validate, I am who I say I am, to, to rub shoulders with the right people so that when others see him, they're like, well, maybe he is. He's, he's with the group. He's hanging out with the group. He's doing the same things that the group is doing. But here's the beauty behind this. He's not trying to go through and to say, I need to prove myself to you. He claimed that he received divine revelation from Jesus himself. 
He knows who he is. He knows whose he is. And he also knows what he's sharing. He was willing in this text to allow even the story of being misunderstood to be something that he was okay with. Did you notice what he says in verse 20? He says, Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Why would he stop there? Because he knows his story sounds crazy. He knows for any reasonable person to be listening to this, they're like, I don't understand. Why did you not go to Jerusalem? Why did you not connect with others? Why did you not do this? He understands that. And in fact, he just pauses and he's like, listen, if I'm lying, I'm dying. He goes, I, honestly, I am telling you the truth. Leaders do not usually avoid the spotlight. And yet that's exactly what he's doing. He had no need of the spotlight because he wasn't seeking external validation for who he was. He was knowing that he was following the commands of Christ. How else does this provide evidence of life change through that comes out of divine revelation? The next one is, the persecuted do not usually glorify God for their persecutors. This is found in verses 22 through 24. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches in Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So for obvious reasons, it was difficult for believers to really grasp the genuineness of his conversion. This is the same guy who had hunted him down. This is the same guy who threw some in prison. This is the same guy who persecuted people to the point of death. So when that guy says, I've changed, really, I have, he's not surprised that he's not receiving the right hand of Christian fellowship. He understands it's going to take people a little while to, to make sure, is the change real? Is it valid? Is it true? We might say, but why didn't they just believe him? I think they had every right to be suspicious. How did they know it wasn't a ploy to find out who the leaders were, to find out where the groups were meeting, so that he could come back later and arrest and to haul them off to prison? They were being cautious. But over time, the circumstances began to reveal the change. In Acts chapter 9, verse 29, the persecutor became the persecuted. When the apostle Paul goes back to Damascus, he left out of fear of his life. When he went to Jerusalem, he was run out of town by those who were trying to kill him. Over the course of time, there were stories about him being beaten and him being stoned and him being shipwrecked and him being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. His face was one that was not known in the churches, but his reputation was going before him. And that is, they said, they kept hearing that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. They kept hearing. That is, they, they heard it over and over. It was repetitive. It wasn't just one time. It was constantly something. They kept hearing about him. Something had changed. Verse 24, and they were glorifying God because of me. Put the evidence together. How does the text give evidence 
of divine revelation through a changed life. This is just what we found. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. Practicing Jews do not usually take a different spiritual path. Doers do not usually boast in their inabilities. Pharisees do not usually dedicate their life to serving Gentiles. Those who join an elite group do not usually avoid the group. Leaders do not usually avoid the spotlight. The persecuted do not usually glorify God for their persecutors. The life change that happened for Paul was massive. And with all the change also came a change in his message. What he shared was different. The intensity that he shared it with might have been equal to the passion prior to Christ, but his message is different. It was a message that was affirmed by the other apostles, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It's also interesting that his understanding of the gospel aligned with their understanding of the gospel, although he did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. There is greater certainty that comes with the cumulative effect of mounting evidence. Now, how do you apply a message like this? I'm going to give you several different ways. Let this chapter be one that begins to grow your faith in the validity of God's word. When you hear somebody say God's word is true, when you hear a skeptic attack it, when you hear if you're in college and you hear a professor say it's not true, it's just myth, there's often a tendency of believers to begin to crumble at that point and think, well, maybe I've missed it. Some of you know, some of you don't. My, my undergrad was in world religion. And the reason I did my undergrad in world religion at the University of Georgia is because I was tired of people asking me, why do you say Jesus is the only way? Have you ever studied the other religions? And I was tired of having to say, no, I've not. So I learned Islam by an imam. I learned Judaism from a rabbi. I learned Taoism and Confucianism by the second foremost authority in the Western Hemisphere on the topic. I wanted to listen to people who not only understood the religions, I wanted to listen to people who were practitioners of those religions. Why? Because sometimes in our attempt at apologetics, we give a Christianized version of what another religion believes. I wanted to hear from the person themselves. But here's what also happened when I was doing that degree. It sent me back into the Word to find evidence. Every time I would hear something, I would say, that doesn't sound right. I know God's Word is truth. How do I find the truth? I became proficient in studying Scripture, looking for answers as a rebuttal for the arguments that I was hearing in classes. In fact, I was sharing with somebody the other day that in my Judaism class I was taking, I, I shared a number of opposing views as opposed to the, the professor who was teaching the class. And over the course of the semester, this professor recognized that he had to be careful about what he said because I was staring at him the whole time. 
And often, if he didn't have it in several different layers, I would begin to call attention to it. So we got all the way to the very end of the semester. And the professor, he said, all right, Paul, what is your view of this? And we engaged in a 45-minute dialogue back and forth about Judaism, the Old Testament, as the last class before the end of the semester. Everybody else in the class was sitting there, and, and we just kept going back and forth in dialogue. And he sprung it on me. He didn't tell me it was coming. I think he tried to return the favor, like, hey, Paul, you've been springing it on me for a whole semester, so let's, let's talk it out. And at the very end of the class, there were different people in the class that says, I don't necessarily believe everything Christians believe, but they said, Paul, I'm glad that there will one day be a pastor like you out there who's willing to engage the conversation. And at the end of the lecture, this professor said, Paul, you have learned well. Go and sin no more. You have 100 on your final exam. I said, thank you, Jesus. I kid you not, in a Judaism class. Thank you, Jesus. I, I walked out with 100 on my final exam. Here's my point in all of that. Don't shy away from conversations about the validity of the Word of God. It can take all the scrutiny that anybody wants to throw at it. It can take any attack. It, it, you don't have to sit there and feel like it's my job to defend every single piece. Just let the Word do the work. All you have to do. Here's another way to apply it. Let this section encourage you to build your own testimony. The Apostle Paul walked through three parts, life prior to Christ, what happened when he met Christ, life after Christ. Use that as a format for how you share your story with others. Here's another one. Let the section prompt you to stop and ask questions of the text. Process your questions with God. Here's the final one. If someone were studying your life 2,000 years from now, would they find enough evidence for your claims that you're a Christian? If not, how would you want to change that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, just for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the time that you've given us to be able to come together and to study. We ask God that we would not be individuals who just get our minds filled with truth, but we never act upon it. Lord, we, we recognize that we know far more truth than we're obeying even at this point. So Lord, may we be not only those who want to study to know your word, but those who study for the point of living it out and you living your life through us. God, I pray that you would encourage those who maybe have been cautious about engaging people and in gospel conversation and biblical conversation. God, encourage us to be prepared and to be ready. Lord, I also pray that you would encourage people to build a testimony, write it out if we have to, to give a little bit about what you did prior to our conversion, what you did whenever we got saved, and how life is different on the other side of salvation. God, may our lives be a strong testimony to the power of a changed life. God, we give you praise and glory, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.